So when I was, uh, when I was in first grade, I remember um, this one day in particular when I got in a lot of trouble in school. I figured I'd just tell you the story uh, while we jump into things today. Um, see, I, I was a pretty, I mean, I like to think I was a pretty good kid in elementary school. Uh, but this one particular day, I don't know, there was these, this one guy on the playground, like, I, we just did not get along. I don't know. I thought he was kind of a bully. Um, I mean, I, I think he probably was. And, and I just didn't, I didn't like bullies then. I do not like bullies now. I was not really in a great position to deal with the bully in first grade. Um, but at the time, I guess I thought I was. Uh, so every um, evening, one of the things we watched was, uh, was Family Matters. Anyone remember that show, Family Matters, WGN? It's a good show. Um, but anyway, the older brother in that show, Eddie, uh, I just, one night, I remember watching it, and uh, there was a bully. And he stood up to this bully and they had like words and he like, you know, Eddie got up on him and he's like, hey, back off. And they were like going back and forth. And, uh, and, and Eddie closed out with this line. He said, if you don't back off, I'm going to crush your head. Um, which I guess I thought was a really cool line because the next day on the playground, this kid uh, was saying something to me. Uh, next thing you know, like we're trading words, fighting words, first grade fighting words, and I'm up in his face and I said, if you don't back off, I'm going to crush your head, which seemed cool when it was on TV. Uh, didn't work out like I thought it would. Like I thought like you just drop that line and it's a mic drop and then you just go away and be like, whoo, I got him. Uh, turns out that is not... That is not what happened. Um, and so we didn't really get in a fight per se, because at the time I was like a little bit faster than he was. And so I took off. Uh, he chased me. We went around in circles. Um, we both got in trouble. I lost like my apple. You know, that was like the, the thing. Like if you did really bad, then you had to take your apple off and shame from like the wall. And then you lost. So I lost, I lost my apple. I was pretty sad about that. And then I had to go see my mom. Uh, which was, you know, embarrassing, too, because she was teaching at Rock Springs at the time, uh, substitute teaching, and, and so that was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> but all that started, the reason I tell you that story is not just because, you know, to shame six-year-old Steve, but um, to, to make a point is that that whole thing started because uh, I thought that the way to get back at someone was to get back at someone. I thought that the best thing that I could do would be to retaliate. That when um, someone came at me, and look, there's plenty of place and time where you need to stand up for what's right and you need to stand up to bullies, trust me. But in this particular situation, I chose to retaliate with violence, um, to return violence for violence, and that really didn't work out like I thought it would. And so uh, I tell you that to get to this question. Is, has anyone ever wronged you before? Anyone ever said anything to you that hurt you? Anyone ever treated you like you weren't very worthwhile? Anyone ever done anything to just really wound you deeply? See, if you've been a person for any length of time, I think I know the answer to that question. I mean, at least I do for me, and I'm guessing I might know it for you too. Uh, we tend to not be very good towards each other. Human beings tend to be really selfish. I think if anything over the last few months, really, as we just look at the broader, broader world that we live in, we've realized that this illusion that people are basically good people, it's an illusion. People are not basically good people. 
Look at the way that people have responded across all sorts of different issues and how everyone's polarized and pushed to different sides and is just throwing these verbal hand grenades at other people and sometimes even physical hand grenades at other people. Like, what is going on, right? Is this, is this what we're meant to do and to be? Um, today, we're going to continue on in the story of Jacob, uh, as we've talked about his life and this great figure in the Old Testament, this founding father of the faith. We're going to continue looking at his story and some situations now as he finally uh, starts to move in with his family to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And what I think we'll realize that this story today is a story about the most rejected and despised character in the Bible, about someone who just completely did not deserve what they got, and was utterly wronged, and, uh, and how they choose to respond in the face of that. And so we'll start here in Genesis 34 um, with Jacob. Uh, so what we hear is that Jacob now, with his whole family, his four wives, 12 kids, boatload of sheep and goats and camels and everything else, he finally makes his way into the, uh, into the land of Canaan, and he settles down outside of a city that's known as Shechem. So that's important. Remember that, Shechem. They settle outside the city. So he's basically a nomadic shepherd. Uh, what he does, he pitches his tents. He gets his flocks out grazing in the fields. He settles down and he digs a well. Now, most of us don't live off of well water, uh, but if you were a nomadic shepherd, to dig a well means like you're sitting down here. This is where you're going to be. And so here Jacob lives outside of this great ancient city of Shechem in central Canaan. And then this is what we're told, as they're starting to get used to this new area, his one and only daughter is named Dinah. So he had 11 sons, one daughter, and his daughter is named Dinah, the daughter that Leah had born to Jacob. This comes from Genesis 34. Uh, it says that she went out to visit the women of the land. So Dinah goes out. I mean, she's from a family of 11 brothers, and she's the only daughter. So she probably, you know, maybe wanted to get to know some people in the area. So she goes out to visit the women of the land. Uh, there's this young man also named Shechem. So they live outside of the city named Shechem, and then there's this dude named Shechem. Shechem the dude is the son of a guy named Hamor, the Hivite, who is the tribal ruler of the area. Um, we're told that when Shechem saw her, he thought she looked pretty good. And this is explicitly what the text says, Genesis 34. It says that when Shechem saw her, he took her and he raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Oh, time out. What just happened? Like, things are looking pretty good, right? Jacob settles in the land. They finally get in the place that's been promised to them. Think life is doing all right. And Dinah, she just wants to get to know the people, some of the other women in the area. And then this dude just says, okay, I want her. And he takes her. And Dinah doesn't consent to it. Um, as a matter of fact, we don't really hear how Dinah feels about any of this at all, but we can only imagine, right? Just an unspeakable tragedy. I mean, any time that someone does something like this to another person, it just deeply violates their humanity and objectifies them and treats them like they are not a human. Um, and that's what happens here in this situation, this case, um, which is bad enough for Dinah. It definitely is a problem for the rest of the family, too. And, you know, especially in this world where everything is so tribal, like it is in the 
you know, 6,000 years ago. Uh, you can imagine this is now like a major geopolitical situation uh, that just happened. And yet this dude, Shechem, he wants to marry Dinah, which is bizarre. Um, but sometimes people are pretty bizarre and are not inherently good people, like we mentioned. And, uh, and so Shechem tells that to his dad. We're told that once Jacob finds out about this, um, Jacob does nothing. Absolutely nothing. He doesn't confront anyone. He doesn't, uh, I mean, we can only imagine what he was feeling. We don't know, though, because no one tells us. But Jacob doesn't do anything. His sons, they're a little upset because their sister was violated and just deeply wrong, and they want justice. And can you blame them? I mean, right? Somebody's got to stand up to these guys. Uh, Jacob, her father, is not the one who's going to do it. Uh, we're told that uh, when he found out, he just... You know, he had a lot of complicated mixed feelings, more of which we'll talk about in a second, but that meanwhile his sons came in from the fields um, where they were doing their work, and then they, they soon heard about what happened, and as they heard about it, what happened, it says that they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And here again, uh, we just need to pause and talk a little bit about just an important life principle and about the, the Bible and the nature of the Bible. Um, we don't know exactly who wrote Genesis and, and the first five books. Most rabbis trace it back to Moses. Um, so we'll just say for the purposes, this is Moses that wrote this down. Um, Moses does not, in this entire story, make any moral judgments about anything that anyone does. Now, this is it, what he just said there. He doesn't say that anything, this, this is a real weird, complicated, messy story that we're jumping into today. If you can't tell that already, it gets worse, um, believe me. And, and the interesting thing to me is that Moses doesn't say that like the sons of Israel, what they do is good or bad. He doesn't say that what Jacob did is good or bad. He doesn't tell us how Dinah's feeling. He doesn't really get into like what Shechem is thinking. Doesn't get into that. All he says is that um, an outrageous thing had been done in Israel, a thing that should not be done. There's a lot of stuff in life where we want to try to pick sides. We want to try to choose who's right and who's wrong. And let's face it, um, most people are right and wrong at the exact same time. I love the way that Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it. He said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. We always want to think that the line is somewhere out there. When in reality, it's in here. It cuts right through you. And it's easy for us to look out there and say, ah, they're, they're wrong and I'm right. I'm on the right side. No. Scripture tells us that line just whew, right through the heart. And that's an important lesson that we get primarily from the text today. Uh, that this was a bad thing. This was an objectively and a morally bad thing that had been done. Uh, and everything else that's going to happen following on um, is pretty complicated and is filtered through uh, human sinfulness and pride and um, the challenges that go along with it. So we just have to get that out in the open out front, which, uh, which the writer of Genesis does. 
Um, so we're told this bad thing had been done, and Shechem and his dad, um, Shechem's still feeling these, these weird, kind of bizarre feelings for Dinah, this woman that he sexually assaulted and took advantage of, he now wants to marry, which is incredibly, like, you know, think about what that would be like for Dinah. I mean, my goodness, I couldn't even imagine. Um, but it says that they approached Jacob about getting Dinah as, uh, as Shechem's wife. I mean, Hamor, the tribal chieftain, I mean, in some ways, this just makes sense, you know? Because if you can propose intermarriage, then Jacob, who has a lot of land and people, uh, but not a city, can marry into this like tribal chieftain who's got this nice fortified walled city, um, but not a lot of land or people around us. This just seems like a good natural political alliance. Um, and at one level, Jacob gets that, as we'll see. I mean, Jacob is thinking long-term here, and he knows that what has been done is bad, but at the same time, isn't sure what he can do about it. I mean, he feels in some ways, I think, like his hands are tied. You know, if he responds with force and violence, then what's going to happen? I mean, there's a chance that his entire family gets destroyed. And so, you know, he starts to weigh those costs. Is it worse, like, one of my children is dishonored or if all of them are dead? Right? Those aren't decisions that any of us ever want to have to make. But that's reality sometimes, that we wade into those murky, muddy places. Um, <clears throat> we're told, though, that the sons of Israel, they feel a way about what's been done to their sister. This is what they're told, we're told. This is because their sister Dinah had been defiled. Jacob's sons replied deceitfully when they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. So they took it upon themselves to respond um, to this proposal for marriage. And here's what they said. They said, well, we can't do such a thing. We can't consent to this marriage. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. So they say, that would be a disgrace to us. However, we will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only. And this, they say, is their condition, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. So ostensibly, the reason they give that they cannot marry Dinah off to Shechem so that they can kind of save face and keep things politically okay, they say, well, we can't because it would violate our deeply held religious beliefs and our covenant with our God, which is what circumcision was, right? It was a sign of the covenant that was then passed on to future generations. And so they say, okay, well, if you're not circumcised, you're not part of the recipient of the covenant, we can't give away a member of our family to someone who, who is not our same uh, religious belief. Shrewd move. We're told uh, Shechem apparently was, uh, was pretty intent on marrying Dinah. And so he convinces his dad. He said, dad, this is Great deal. Let's do it. We're going to go for it. Uh, they bring together all of the men in the great city of Shechem out to the city gate, which is where they made decisions in the ancient world. And we're told that everyone at the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. So this is like a pretty big commitment that everybody's getting into to get on board with this marriage, you know? Like they're going all in as a society, um, changing some things in their life. Um, but we're told this, the brothers didn't have really pure motives in mind. Um, this is exactly what we're told. This is three days later, while all of the men of the city were still in pain. Three days after every male in the city had been circumcised, when uh, their bodies were still healing 
and they weren't really in a capacity to do much of anything. We're told that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, which were Dinah's full brothers. So remember that Jacob had four wives, uh, so a lot of half-siblings, but Dinah was full brothers with Simeon and Levi, two of his sons. Um, Her two full brothers took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city of Shechem, killing every male. They killed everybody. Every single one. It says, They put Hamor and his son Shechem the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies, left them, and then looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized the flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and went out into the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and all their children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. What just happened? It's just like, my goodness, you know? Um, See what I'm talking about? How we can't really try to make moral judgments about who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side? I mean, the author of Genesis is very clear. Um, What had been done to Dinah was despicable. An outrageous thing had been done in the land of Israel. A thing that should not be done. Uh, He makes that point, right? And then this is where a lot of people get really confused sometimes when they talk about the Bible because the 12 leaders, I mean, the leaders of the tribes of Israel who would eventually become the leader, I mean, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Reuben, I mean, these men, like, they, they do a bad thing too. Like, they kill everybody, every man in the town, and then they just leave their bodies laying out in the streets. They loot the entire city. They take all their stuff, all their stuff, their women, their children. They make them their women and their children, and they just leave these bodies rotting in the street. Like, is that good? Is that moral? I mean, who's right? Who's wrong? Can you say? Are, let me ask you, are you willing to make the determination and say, make that judgment and say, these people were in the right, these people were in the wrong, these people deserved what they got, these people did not deserve what they got? Like, thank God that I am not a judge, that I am not the judge. That's God's job, it's not mine. That's God's job, it's not yours either. Remember the line... Dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. And a lot of times in the Bible, these people, even people who are very important in the stories we've talked about, they're not really held up as like the moral example. We just see their life and see that even in the midst of the mess, God can still use them in all of their messiness and their muddle. He can redeem any and every situation. Um, But of course, they do this just crazy thing, right? And I mean, at one level now... um, it sort of solves the political situation, right? Like, very clear. Like, hey, they go back to their dad, Jacob, and say, hey, dad, this city is ours now. Like, we can move in. You want to move into this city? So they go back to Jacob, uh, and, and he turns to Simeon and Levi, and he says, what did you do? He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious, which is an interesting way to translate that into, into English. Um, I mean, I think it gets the point, but I think the, the bigger sense is that you have made me like a complete, like I'm going to, they're going to kill me. <laughs> like obnoxious maybe doesn't quite get the right shade here. Uh, but anyway, the text says you've made me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And now that they know what we do to our neighbors, if they join forces against me and attack me, me and my entire household will be destroyed. 
And right, like you see what Jacob's saying. Do you blame him? He just wants to, you know, live and have peace. And this was a horrible thing that was done, but should they have done that to this entire city? You know what I mean? Uh. And Simeon and Levi respond. And they said, Dad, I hear you, but, here I quote, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? You know, they got a point though, right? <laughs> like, should he? No, this is a horrible thing. So what do you do? Justice demands that something be done. So who's the one to bring justice? I mean, Simeon and Levi and their brother, they took it into their own hands. What, what, who's right? Who's wrong? What, what do we do? Most of the time in the world, the reason we talk about this story is because like, we live in a very confusing, very messy world where there's a lot of different people who are doing some things right and some things wrong. Um, and I, I bring this to you today in part because when you take a step back and you look at the political and the social climate in our country, there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of claims, saying that they're on the right side and everyone else is on the wrong side about everything. And I just want you to, to stop and think. Think with your mind and realize that that's not true. There is no side in any of this. In our world, we're like, these people are completely right and these people are completely wrong. This is not how human beings are. We are sinful people. And so just think about that, right? This is the problem for so many of us when um, followers of Jesus hitch their wagon to a political party. This is why it's a problem. And we say that, no, 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 I completely agree with everything that these people over here say. I mean, do you really? Like, look at what they say. Is that real aligned with the teaching of Jesus? Ask the hard questions. Stop and think. It's important because too many people are responding just without thinking. And when you respond without thinking, you know what you do? You, you make a mess, a bigger mess than you already got. So I want you to just think about that. And then let's get back to the story of Jacob. In the story, who's right? Who's wrong? What's the right thing to do? What would you do if you were in any of these places in this situation? What would you do? What does justice look like? What does truth look like? What does grace look like? What does love look like in this situation? Right? What do you do? Uh, I think one of the interesting questions in this that we don't typically ask is, uh, what about Dinah? How's she doing? How would she answer that question? What does justice look like to her? What does um, truth look like to her? What does vengeance look like to her? What does retaliation look like to her? What does forgiveness look like for her? Put yourself in her shoes for a second. What do you think she would think is an appropriate response from her dad and her brothers? See, 2,000 years or so after this, maybe as much as 4,000 years after this, we come back to the same exact place. Uh, you remember that when Jacob settled down outside of the city of Shechem, he sunk a well right there. Uh, that well stayed there for thousands of years. And thousands of years later, we hear that this well that was very creatively named Jacob's well uh, was still standing in the same exact spot. Um, and we hear of a woman who came out from the city that was no longer known as Shechem, but she came out of the city and came out to Jacob's well at about the middle of the day. Um, she was a woman um, 
that based on the fact that she's coming out to the well in the middle of the day, we, we realize that like she is not really accepted in the broader part of society. Um, it, I mean, in the ancient world, going out to get water was a thing. That was like a to-do. And so like you get all ready to go, and you go out and get water in the morning with all the other ladies, and you'd share the hot goss and everything else going on. Um, this is part of life, part of the social fabric of that society. And, um, and we hear this woman, uh, we don't get her name, we hear that she wanders out to Jacob's well in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, uh, to get water for herself and her family. Um, we hear that she came at noon to get water because she was not welcome in the morning. She was not welcome in the morning to go with the rest of the other women because she had been married five times and she was living with a man now who was not her husband. That would make man number six. She was a woman who had been rejected, who had been passed over, who had been ignored, who had been despised, who had been abused physically, who had been used physically, who had been made all kinds of value judgments about her worth as a human being, tied so often to her physical body and the pleasure that she could give to a man. And here she is in the middle of a day, um, going out to the well, rejected by everyone in her society because no one had time for her, and no one thought she was worth uh, even having a conversation with. She comes out to this well, and there she meets a Jewish rabbi who is sitting there, and he says, woman, would you give me a drink? She doesn't understand what he's asking. She says, no, who are you asking me for a drink? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm unworthy? Don't you know that everyone else thinks I'm disgusting? Don't you know that everyone else is rejecting me? Don't you know uh, everything else about my life? And it's interesting, that man, that Jewish rabbi, he did. He did know all those things about her. He knew every time she'd been passed over. He knew every time she'd been rejected. He knew every time that she'd been told she wasn't good enough. He knew every single time um, that she had been let down by a man. He knew it all. And you'll remember that I said that this was a story of the most rejected character in the Bible. And the great irony is that as we take a step back and we look, we realize that the Bible is one long story about how human beings have rejected God over and over and over again. There are very few people in that city outside of Jacob's well who could possibly have known anything that that woman had gone through, who could possibly make sense of any amount of the rejection and the abandonment that she felt. There are very few people, if any at all, but perhaps the only one who could even come close was the only one who knew it better than she did. It was Jesus. And he's sitting out there by this well, and he's saying, I have something that can help you. You're thirsty, I can see it. You come to this well every day, you draw water from this well every day, you come alone, and yet there's a thirst that this well cannot satisfy. He says, if you come to me every day, if you draw from me every day, I will give you a living water that will never leave you thirsty again. That's grace. And it's the kind of grace that only Jesus can give. It's the kind of grace that only Jesus can give as someone who had been rejected over and over and over again. You see, with the woman at the well and every person who has ever been abused, rejected, brutalized, despised, ignored, or broken hearted by someone else, um, what they would come to know is this word from Isaiah that was applied to Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we, we held him in low esteem. The Gospel of John put it like this, is that Jesus came to his own, and his own rejected him. If you've ever felt rejected, if you've ever felt betrayed, if you've ever felt like someone has hurt you or wronged you or done something to you that was unjust or unfair, if you've ever felt like you're not good enough, if you've ever felt like um, you needed to become something so someone else would approve of you, if you ever felt like you'd been passed off from one person to another, what I want you to hear is that there is someone who can meet you in that place and who can offer you something um, that will never leave you thirsty or hungry or wanting again. It's Jesus. He told this woman, come to me and I will give you water from this well that will never run out. You know, the interesting thing about Jesus is someone who was rejected and who was uh, despised and who was ignored um, is that Jesus made a very interesting choice in the face of that hurt, didn't he? Right, like if anyone, if anyone is justified in seeking vengeance uh, when they are wronged, would you not think that God is, you know? Like as we look back across this whole story, the story of Jacob and really across the story of humanity, when someone is wronged, I mean, justice is people getting what they deserve, right? It's a simple definition. Justice is people getting what they deserve. And of course, we read about it in the, in the law, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. I mean, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When someone wrongs you, you are in some ways completely justified, perhaps even obligated to get back at them for exactly what they got from you. And yet, and yet, we look at Jesus and he does not do that. He doesn't do that. Right? That when people spit in his face, what does he do? When people slap him across the cheek, what does he do? When people make unrealistic demands of him, what does he do? When people tell him that he is not good enough, what does he do? When people arrest him and they make false accusations about him and they hand him over to pagans and they crucify him alongside criminals outside the city gates, what does he do? Jesus, we're told, said this, hanging from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus makes a choice to forgive. Jesus makes a choice to turn the other cheek. Jesus makes a choice to allow himself to be wronged from a place of love in order that God's justice would eventually be realized and that we would not have to suffer the vengeance that we deserve. Um, I just think that's so important for us in the world that we live in today, in a world where so often we think that we need to become something else, we need to change who we are to fit in, we need to uh, retaliate to get back at someone else, we need to hold on to resentment and to bitterness, and yet what Jesus offers is a totally different way. And Jesus offers to come to me, to drink from me, to find life in me, and that as you do that, you can learn that vengeance and retaliation and payback and being right and having the last word, that's not up to you. It's not up to you. And it really doesn't matter if you get those things anyway. That what Jesus offers you is better. That what Jesus offers you is a way of abundant life. 
All right, I heard this this morning. It just it really sank in with me. You know, Jesus didn't say, uh, come to me and I will make you a religious weirdo. Jesus said, come to me and I will make you fishers of men. Come to me and I will give you living water. Come to me and I will give you abundant life. Jesus came to give life. He came to give peace. He came to give forgiveness. He came to restore and to redeem and to put all things back to right. That's what he offers you. And so as you look back across your life, I want you to think about those times. Think about those places where you've been wronged. Think about those places where you've been hurt. Think about those places where you've been rejected or made to feel like you were worthless or passed over or whatever it might be. And whether you put yourself in Dinah's shoes in this story, I mean, a horrible place to be. Or you think about yourself, maybe you're in that place like Jacob where someone that you care about has been wronged in some pretty horrible ways. Or you think about it in terms of like Simeon and Levi, these, these two brothers who their sister's been defiled, as the text says, and they, they just want to get, they're consumed with anger, justifiably so, but, and they want to get back. Or maybe you find yourself in that same place like Shechem, this young man who did a horrible thing, and yet didn't really understand even what he was doing. Maybe you find yourself... Uh, in the situation like this woman who comes to Jesus at the well, who'd been passed over time and time and time again. Um, in whatever place you find yourself in life, what I want you to hear is that you can come to Jesus because he comes to you first. The woman at the well, she meets Jesus. Jesus was waiting for her there. She just had to go about her life. In the course of her normal life, Jesus was waiting for her right there. And he came offering grace and he came offering forgiveness. There is forgiveness for you in the name of Jesus. There is forgiveness for you and for all people in the name of Jesus. There is forgiveness for you and for all people, even the people that you do not like, even the people that you hate in the name of Jesus. It is why Jesus said, he said, um, love your enemies. It's really easy to love people in your family. It's really easy to love people who look like you and talk like you and think like you. Uh, he said, but love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Because those people, that is what the character of God is like. To love people who hate you. Now that's a thought. That's the kind of thing that can change the world. When rather than retaliating or returning violence for violence, you instead return grace and forgiveness and love where there has been a wrong done. When there are outrageous things done in the land of Israel... And as a matter of fact, there is perhaps nothing more outrageous done in the land of Israel than when Jesus is crucified. Um, one who was completely without sin, who lived a human life just as we are, but yet didn't sin. Um, someone who treated everyone he met with kindness and with respect. Someone who uh, taught about a way of peace and of joy and of love in the kingdom of God. Um, to be handed over out of selfish ambition and greed and... Um, and overzealousness for religious institutions, there's perhaps nothing more wrong than that. For the very God who creates and who loves to be so rejected by mankind as to be crucified like a criminal. And in that place, Jesus says, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And it is from that place that Jesus tells us, my dear brothers and sisters, when you pray, pray in this way. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
Forgiveness isn't really optional if you want to follow Jesus. In so many ways, it is the way of his kingdom. The point is, is that everything that you have done, every violation and rejection that you have done against God and others, God forgives you. And so who are you to refuse that forgiveness to another? Jesus told a story one time to illustrate this point. I'll close with it today. Um, Jesus told a story of a, of a man who had some servants, and, uh, and the servant had just an unpayable debt. And the man told him, he's like, look, you know, you, you need to pay your debt. And the man said, I can't possibly pay my debt. And um, they go back and forth, and the man eventually says, okay, well, your debt has been forgiven. I've forgiven you the entire debt. You do not need to pay a thing. Now go in peace. And the man goes off, and he goes about his way. And the first thing that he does, the first thing he does is Jesus tells the parable. He says, the first thing he does, he goes and finds someone who owes him money. And he grabs him by the collar and he says, you owe me money. Where's my money? <laughs> the guy says, well, I can't pay it. And rather than doing what had been done to him, what does he do? He shakes him for every coin he's got, and he says, okay, I'm gonna th- you're going to be thrown in prison until you can pay. Now, the point of the story that Jesus is saying is that when the, the master heard about what this one servant had done, the servant who had been forgiven this debt, and how he shook down another servant for his debt, what the master did, you know what he did? He took him, he threw him in prison. You know why? He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you. Who are you to hold that against someone else? When it comes to our lives as human beings, and especially for those who are followers of Jesus, uh, you want to say that you've been forgiven which is what Jesus does on the cross, right, is that he pays the debt for all mankind when it comes to our sin and our shame and our guilt. If you want to say that you've been forgiven, then forgiveness isn't an option. As a matter of fact, it's the only choice that you really can make. It's not easy. It's not easy. That's another thing that we can talk about, you know, how to forgive. And if you have questions about that, man, we can talk about that. Reach out. Let me know. But what I want us to get at today is that you need to recognize very just simply that human beings are messy and they are complicated. And in those great words, I I love them, of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the human heart. It is not up to you to judge. It is not up to you to make the moral determination of who's right and who's wrong. It is up to you to simply be, just be, be a human being and allow God to deal in his way. And it's up to you then to extend his grace and his kingdom to other people. And uh, for maybe if you've been on the other side and you feel like you've been wronged and you've been rejected and you've been hurt, I, I just want you to know I, I love you, I am with you, I am praying for you. Um, but there is only one place where you can find healing and wholeness and health and forgiveness, and that's in Jesus. Very simply, there's nowhere else. No other well that is as deep as him. No, every other well will always run dry, but Jesus is an eternal well of living water that will never run dry, and you can count on that. So I'd like to pray for you today, however you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, whatever you find yourself struggling with, I um, just invite you to pray with me as we close out our time together today. If you would, let's, let's just pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your justice. We thank you, Jesus, that you came full of grace and truth that you came um, to, to be among us, to show us the way to live a human life, that you came offering forgiveness for our sin, and that you came instructing us how to forgive others, that you come and you show us um, the real way of life, that the only way to combat violence is with 
uh, forgiveness is with peace, that there's perhaps other ways to go about doing things in our world than we've so often made it. Father, we thank you that um, you show us and reveal to us in your infinite wisdom that really no one is righteous, not even one, that we're all broken people, that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of your goodness and of your glory and of the, the high standards of your kingdom, um, and that we don't need to just sit in judgment over others or even judgment over ourselves, but that if we all could just come to you, uh, to the source of living water, and if we could just trust you in that place to bring healing and redemption and forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness, um, that so many things in our world, in our relationships, and the brokenness around us would be put back into rights. And so, Father, I pray for everyone watching this today, if you connected with us, God, I pray that they would um, be drawn to you, and by your Spirit you would draw them to yourself, that they would find in you the nourishment and the refreshment that their souls need and that they long for. And we thank you, Jesus, that you give us grace. Thank you for your love, and thank you for your forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today, folks. Like I said, if there's anything that you want to reach out to, let me know questions about the message, questions about um, forgiveness or anything that we talked about today. Please do reach out. Let me know how I can be of service to you. Um, that said, y'all have a great week. Make a great day. We'll catch you right here next time.